Hello, I want to give a trigger warning on today's episode. The following conversation covers topics of sexual abuse. If you are or know someone who is experiencing sexual abuse or assault, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. That is 1-800-656-4673. And if you're in the mental space, I highly encourage you to listen to today's empowering conversation. Welcome to Ellas, a bi-weekly podcast made by Latinas for Latinas. I talk with talented, inspiring, and empowering women that are living their dreams and making a path for the next generation. I'm Brenda hernandez Caimes, and this is Ellas. Hola, welcome back to Ellas. I'm your host, Brenda hernandez Jaimes, and I'm so happy you're joining me for episode 40. For today's episode, I have the honor of introducing today's guest, Rosalia Rivera. Rosalia Rivera is a passionate content educator, sexual literacy advocate, speaker, change agent, and survivor turned thriver. She is the host of About Consent, a podcast for survivors and those who support survivors. Rosalia is also the founder of Consent Parenting, an online platform for survivors parents to learn how to protect their families from abuse. She's also the creatrix of Constant Wear, a clothing brand for kids, teens, and adults to create constant culture. Constant parenting has been featured in ABC News, Telemundo, CVT News, and more. I'm excited to share her amazing journey with you all. And so please welcome Rosalia Rivera. Hola. <laughs> Hola, thank you for having me. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good, all things considered, <laughs> with everything oh going on. Yes, everything, a lot of things have going on, and but I think due to what the last events and the global pandemic that has been going on this year, you, yourself, your work, what you're doing is even it was important before it's even vital today and mm. i'm excited to start this conversation with you and you know you share your knowledge with our listeners and your journey so but before that i want to start to ask you who is rosalia hmm. so uh that's a an interesting question because uh i've only recently discovered it myself um i you know am a latina of course a mother of three a um i i have a, an amazing partner so i i feel like my life is uh complete but i am always um fighting you know for the underdog for the for for those who are the most vulnerable. Um, I think I've always had that calling in my life. Um, but I, I finally feel like I've stepped into that mission, that role that I've always been meant to step into. And, you know, like you said, now more than ever, it's so needed. So I'm grateful that I'm, you know, able to do that. And in terms of, you know, who I am, I, I am an empowered mujer on a mission to uh, end child sexual abuse, to help survivors become free, to, to feel liberated, to heal. Um, and so that we, you know, that can be part of the movement of equality in the world, you know, so that's, 
that's what I would say, you know, kind of encompasses who I am. Perfect. So I want to learn how you approached helping the underdog in your early years. I know it was until recently when you step into that life calling and that role, but looking back, did you ever notice in your early years? So in your early years, looking back, have, did you, did you notice that it was something that it was in you from like age six in your early teens yeah, it's funny that, you know, looking back when I remember um, first moving to the U.S. because I, I was born in El Salvador and uh, I was five when we moved here. So I remember um, even back then when I was in first or second grade that if there was like I remember there was a uh, hurricane that had happened in El Salvador and I wanted to do a fundraiser in my school. I was like six years old and I wanted to like, you know, collect food and cans and like be able to ship and donate to help, you know, those who had been affected by the hurricane. And my mom reminds me of that. She's like, you know, ever since you were little, like you always wanted to help those who, um, you know, had been hurt, you know, and I think that that's just always been in my nature as I got older and I learned about, um, mental health and what are the sources of those mental illnesses that we, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I suffer from depression or I suffer from, from anxiety, but nobody talks about like what's causing those things mm-hmm. as the root and how is that based on culture and, and like always wanting to find out how we can help each other live better lives, you know, so I became fascinated as, as I grew up with more of the mental wellness space um, but specifically for those who had been affected by sexual trauma, because that was something that, um, just kept coming up in my life, uh, you know, since I could remember really because of my own obvious abuse, but then also other family members, um, later coming to find out, you know, my mom and realizing like how big of an issue this is, not just for adults, you know, who have come, you know, who have survived it, Mm -hmm. but for, for children and realizing like, that's our most vulnerable, um, population. Um, and it wasn't until I became a mom that that kind of came full circle. And I realized like, I've always wanted to help, um, you know, those who can't, who don't have a voice or who can't speak Mm -hmm. up themselves, you know, so that that's always been sort of, um, woven into all different parts of my life in different ways. And, you know, coming to it now, it's, it's really all come together, uh, for, for me to realize like, this is, these are the most vulnerable in our society, children. Yes. And, you know, they will always be the underdog just because of that, you know? So, um, I'm just really like now that I have children and I see my own kids empowered and I see how much of a change we can make culturally around that it can really change society and generations to come. So it's really exciting work for that reason. And, you know, I love doing it. Yes. And it's much, it's, it's necessary work because as you said, children are the ones that don't have a voice or not empowered enough to vocalize what they're going through and what, you know, things that happen to them. And you, you mentioned, you know, you moved to El Salvador from El Salvador when you were five to New York, correct? Yeah. And obviously life experiences have happened. You are yourself a survivor of sexual abuse. And obviously 
you starting consent parenting was later on in your life, but you chose another path. And it was, you know, you even have a marketing agency where you were thriving, you had clients. And I just find that interesting in the sense like we choose a path for ourselves Mm -hmm. and life is telling us, no, like, yeah, <laughs> you, you need to do this, right? Exactly. Like your, your calling is this, but we're like so focused on another path that we keep yeah. doing, it, doing it. And, you know, from learning from you, I have a lot of, I connected through that because we're so focused on the path that we tend to burn out. We like mm-hmm. give it our all just to demonstrate to ourselves that we can be in that position that we've always envisioned for ourselves. So can you share with me how it was starting that first path in your life, opening up your business, because that is something to be proud of as well, and really connecting with your clients and in a sense, yeah, doing good, you know, mm-hmm. helping them out. How was that those years of your life? Yeah. So when, when I was, um, when I was deciding what to do for school, I ended up going into psychology. I went to university for psychology um, because I wanted to be a sex therapist and I wanted to work with survivors. I wanted to help survivors, right, from, from sexual trauma. And I started going, uh, I went three years and I realized that I was getting triggered. I couldn't really explain why. Um, I, I decided that maybe there was different ways that I could help survivors. And I actually wanted to go into um, journalism, like photojournalism and documentary photography kind of work. And I just decided I'm stopping, you know, what I'm doing in, in, my, in university. And then I'm going to move to the city. I, you know, I was in New York City, moved to the city and decided to enter the photography world, um, thinking that, you know, I would go into jur- journalism, photojournalism. But I took a really different turn. And I think part of why I did that was because um, I was kind of running away from this really hard topic, right? It was like, this is, this is much more glamorous. Like I was in the photo, like commercial high-end, you know, fashion and beauty industry. Um, I quickly moved up the ranks. Like I was working as the director of marketing at one point for this photography and um, services company. And you know, by all standards was like really successful in that. But there were a lot of issues for me in terms of ethics, like seeing how images were retouched and, you know, how this industry was really like false, falsely advertising, you know, so many things. So I was like, this isn't what I meant to to be doing. I tried to go back to um, my roots of wanting to do photojournalism, went back to school for that. And started working on that. I actually started doing a um, photo documentary, uh, film documentary on uh, rape, on like survivors of rape and how they could, like how they were empowering themselves, how they were overcoming that situation, right? And I, again, got really triggered, you know, and I realized like, okay, I need to put this work down. It's too heavy. Like it was just too much doing the research for that project. And I ended up um, starting a family, moving to Canada, which is where I live now. And um, when my second child was uh, like in their um, like toddler stage, I decided that I was going to go back to some of the roots of marketing that I had. And I, you know, knew how to do graphic design and photography. 
uh, started doing some projects for friends and it quickly snowballed into this uh, company, which I ended up having to start because there was so much demand. I had to get a team together and, you know, put together um, a business and had, you know, five employees at one point, uh, really successful. We had clients, um, you know, really well-known within a very short amount of time. But I came back to that same issue where I was like, this is not my calling. Like as much as I keep trying to do these other things because the real stuff is triggering, um, you know, and I'm really successful at this. I'm good at it. You know, um, I know that I can deliver. I had, you know, business. I was so focused on that, that I started burning out. And a lot of things in my life started to suffer. And I realized like, I'm just out of balance because I'm running in this other direction so that I'm running away from the thing that is really calling me. And all that running gets exhausting. You Mm -hmm. know, you just keep running away from the thing that uh, is uncomfortable, is scary, right? It's the Mm -hmm. unknown. And I wanted to stay with what I did know. Um, So ultimately, uh, once I, you know, because of my children and because of the fact that I was running a marketing business, I had to either put them in daycare or get a nanny to come take care of the kids. And I always felt like this fear of what if I don't, haven't prepared them? What if they don't, you know, and my mom's a survivor. My sister is, I am. So it was like, I can only protect them so much because they're still going out into the world. And I realized that I, I needed to learn more about how to protect them. So I started doing that and, um, you know, all at the same time as running this business. And it just felt like I'm not, I'm putting them in, in danger without, you know, teaching them. And for, for this business that I don't really love, like it ultimately came to a head and I decided, you know, I need to put this, you know, close the business. Um, and I decided to do some soul searching and, and look at what, what do I really want to do? Cause I keep running away from this other thing, but like, how can I do that in a way that's mentally sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to benefit my, my children as well. And, and I came to realize that as I was doing my own research and learning about how to keep my kids safe, um, I was having these experiences that were triggering again. Right. And I'm like, I have to f- figure out how to do that. So I started my own healing journey. I, I started going to therapy. I really dedicated myself to healing um, and finding ways to help others and figure out like, how can I do this to help other people? Because that's really where my heart is happiest. And when I do it, you know, I wake up in the morning excited to work, you know? Um, so ultimately that's how Consent Parenting was born. And, and with that, it was really more on a focus of helping survivors who were going through similar experiences as me, um, who need that support. And nobody was talking about that. Nobody was saying like, if you're going to teach this, it's probably going to be triggering. And here's how you can navigate that so that you do it, you know, a hundred percent and your kids are going to be truly empowered and you break the cycle. You know, we want to like break that cycle. That's, that's the, the, biggest goal. It's so liberating and it's so empowering for your family. So, um, you know, once it, it felt like a download, you know how they say like, you know, you, ha- you get downloads from, from source or from the universe, you know, yeah. that's what it felt like when it finally clicked. And, you know, after all that soul searching, I was like, this is what I'm meant to be doing. I, I'm, I built my resilience up enough to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, this is the path. And ever since I, um, 
had the courage to, to say, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be open about, you know, the fact that I'm a survivor. Um, it seems like the universe opened the doors and was like, finally, <laughs> you finally decided yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, to do this, that we, you know, I, I feel like I've been nudged in this direction all my life, but I finally had the courage to, to start doing it. And I'm really, you know, happy that I did. So. And I feel like your experiences of, because you tried, you know, there were moments in your life that you approached it, but you knew that it triggered you. You weren't hearing you, you weren't mentally prepared for it. You Mm -hmm. know, you weren't in the events that needed you to fully accept it, to be fully prepared and find a space in that trauma, in that area to fully embrace your life calling exactly yeah so like you said you know constant parenting is about parents that are also survivors you as well so you had to be a parent you had to open up your business you had to go through those experiences and that worry of like I don't want this to happen to my children even Mm -hmm. though I'm trying to educate them like what is a better way so yeah yes I think Looking back, you definitely grew and, and learned a lot more about yourself and how even to communicate to these two parents who are also worried of, and worried also about being triggered and worried that their children will have that same awful experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you started constant parenting. What were those first few months of you, you know, you had done the work before prior of, a, of starting it, you know, therapy, researching the download when the moment is, when you're ready, life is like, okay, I'm giving you yeah. so much opportunities, <laughs> things like doors open. Yeah. But talk with me about those first months, you know, how is it you able to establish what topics as a survivor, you, you knew that needed to be said and, and in what ways, because, this is a, a subject that is that is that is needed to be spoken, but in ways that also do not trigger parents. Yeah, so yeah. How was that developing it? Yeah, it was um, really scary in the beginning. You know, I really needed a lot of support. I knew that as I as I launched it, I needed to um, stay committed to my healing. And a lot of times, we you know when we're going through a healing journey, we may make progress. And then we're like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> and then we don't think, we think we don't need, you know, any more help. And that's, unfortunately, that's not how it really works. Uh, because healing is not linear. It's messy. Um, it's beautiful. It's scary. It's everything, you know, mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that we have support to do it. So when I was deciding to make this, you know, big like, you know, it feels like coming out, you know, what, what someone who, you know, has something that they're afraid to disclose comes out, it's um, both scary and liberating, you know, and, but having support, you know, making sure that I had put those things into place, which is what I always recommend to survivors, you know, I said, if you're going to start teaching about this, get a support system in place, that's really important, um, because you will have hard times with it, And you need to get that, you know, that support from people who really care, who can help you through it, 
um, who will remind you of, you know, what are the things that you can do to, to get through those hard times. Um, and that's really hard and tricky for survivors to do a lot of times, especially I think in the Latinx culture, we're taught not to ask for help. You know, you, you don't talk about those things. And I'm out here saying like, no, we have to talk about these things and you have to ask for help because you can't always do it alone. You know, if you've done it alone your whole life, you may think, well, that's, you know, I survived this far and I've done it this far. Um, but you'll quickly find that it gets overwhelming and that's what kept happening to me. So I was like, now I know I need support. I need to make sure that, you know, I've got that in place. So those first few months were scary, but it was also so encouraging because as soon as I came out about that, the amount of the, the overpouring of support from the community who was receiving it, um, you know, messages of people like so excited that there was someone speaking about it openly and who was uh, that they could relate to, you know, that they resonated with the story and they resonated with the experiences and they didn't feel so alone about it. Um, so that really gave me like that encouragement to keep going. And I realized like, this is definitely needed. Um, it wasn't just in my head. <laughs> you know, I, I knew that this experience wasn't being talked about and it changes based on being a Latinx brown, you know, person yes. of color. It really changes the conversation too. So I wanted to make sure that I was also speaking to that. And, you know, I've recently started um, putting out a lot of my content in Spanish as well, because I know that that community needs to be served with this information. So um, it's, it's continued to evolve in like the most beautiful way. Um, but I won't lie, it's still really hard because, you know, I'm constantly doing research about you know, what predators think, how they think, how, you know, what strategies and tactics they use, um, staying current with the news and the way that laws, you know, impact and just learning and doing the trainings that I do to stay on top of this information can be really hard, you know, because you're confronting that all the time, but um, it's balanced out by the support that I get. And that's like incredibly uh, amazing to, to have that kind of, um, community behind you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been, um, it's, it's, you know, got both, you know, good and bad. Um, but the good definitely outs, outweighs, you know, the, the other stuff. Yeah. And like you said, you have that support system when that, when you need to step back, they're there for you. Right. Yeah. And, and then I think that it always goes back to your why and, and why you started this right for your children, for the parents, for their children, you know, to not have these experiences and to be educated. And if, if it happens, you know, how to approach it, correct? And exactly. I love that you said that you're now starting, you're providing your um, information in Espanol because like mm -hmm. you said, yes, if our Latinx community is hard to talk about asking for help and, and talking about abuse, and even about therapy, you know, it's hard, but even it's more hard for Spanish speaking Latinos to even approach those subjects. And yeah. so I want to go deeper into your life. And I imagine you were part of that. It was hard right? I, 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 that, you know, you were raised, born and raised in a Spanish speaking Latino family. And was it hard to talk about? you know, what had happened, what was going on? Like, how did you 
find your voice to come out of that situation of being abused? Yeah, so I actually didn't disclose about that until I was an adult. Um, so it wasn't something that my mom knew about. Um, she had no, like, she was really overprotective, again, because she's also a survivor. And mm-hmm. so, so for her, it was always um, the danger of someone from the outside the family, because that was her own experience, was that it was somebody outside of the family with her. So she never imagined that it could happen inside the family, you know? So unfortunately it wasn't something that she ever um, felt like she needed to warn us about, you know, in terms of family. And, and unfortunately that's a very common misconception, right? Like people think, Oh, it's going to be a stranger or it's going to be somebody else, you know, who's not in the family. Um, So, but the way that she also grew up um, was very strict and it was very, you know, Catholic based, I was raised, you know, in a strict Catholic home. We went to church every Sunday. Um, Sex was never discussed at home. Like it was actually kind of sex negative. Like it was always about, you know, um, we can't, first of all, don't think about sex. It's a sin, Um, you know, and don't dress certain ways so that you're not attracting attention. Like there was a lot of fear-based, you know, education around abuse prevention. And it wasn't really talked about. It was just like, you just kind of knew that there were dangers out there, but we, you know, it was nothing very specific because she never received that education either. Um, and also being an immigrant, you know, from El Salvador to New York and like not really speaking the language, she just didn't have access to a lot of resources. Um, like today, you know, you just go on Google and you research stuff like back then, you know, the eighties, you didn't have that. So, um, so a lot has, you know, changed from then to now, but I think with um, the home culture, it was just very, like, you just didn't talk about it. And we, there was this sort of clash of cultures that I grew up in because on one end, I was five, you know, pretty much grew up in the U.S. So I was, had this American culture that I was exposed to in school. And then you come home and it's very like Catholic, you know, Latin culture and, you know, what I was seeing on the outside was like Madonna, George Michael, like talking about sex, salt and pepper talking about sex. And then at home, it was like, you don't even say the word, like you can't mm-hmm. even say, you know, so we never talked about it. It wasn't like a, a topic that um, fully came up. I just knew I wasn't allowed to go to people's houses for sleepovers. You know, uh, my mom was always like paying attention to make sure I wasn't like, you know, coming home late or at people's houses. It was just really strict. Um, but looking back on it now, that's one of the one of the mistakes that a lot of parents make mm-hmm. is that they think they they're overprotecting, they have their eye on their child, and they don't realize all of the different other ways that they could be potentially, you know, being abused um, by people that they know because that's the highest percentage. It's actually ninety percent of abuse is from people that um, the family knows and trusts. So. That's one thing that, you know, I wanted to make sure with my, you know, with my kids and my family is that we, we started this as early as possible, that we were really proactive, that we were doing it in a way that was comprehensive and that there was nothing that was ever off the table to talk about, you know, so it's a really radical (laughs) shift from the way that I grew up to, Mm -hmm. you know, but still I understand, um, like having that experience, I think has helped me working with Latin families, you know, because I understand like that cultural aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. 
how was that experience with your mother about you speaking up and telling her, you know, it, my abuser wasn't from outside. It was from, you know, was it fa- a family member that? Yeah, it was a family member. Um, and well, so the same person that abused me also abused my sister. So, um, and my sister had actually come out about it first. Um, I didn't actually have memories until they surfaced um, when I was an adult. And so when I was younger and my sister had come out, I was about 17 at the time when she disclosed. Um, and we, you know, it was a, I think that my mom just didn't know what to do. Like she believed my sister mm-hmm. and totally had support for her. Um, but again, like just being a, an, an immigrant to this country and the system here, she just wasn't sure, like, do you report it? Like, do you, um, you know, get counseling? Like none of that unfortunately happened, but she was believed. So at the very minimum, you know, she did have the support from, from all of us. Uh, but it was really hard for my mom, you know, like, of course, to recognize that it was somebody um, that, you know, you obviously trust and is a family member and you're just shocked. Um, and I think that there was never any doubt um, because in retro- in retrospect, I think they saw the, the red sign, the red flags after. I just, I think a lot of times people just don't want to accept those um, possibilities even mm-hmm. like, you know, and I think when it, when the truth comes to fruition and you're like, I should have seen the signs, you know, unfortunately that's a lot of parents. Um, this is why it's so important to get, you know, that education, but it was really hard for her. I mean, she tried so hard to restrict us from, you know, going out, not realizing, you know, that it was, it was happening inside. Yeah. So it was, it was hard. I think it, for any parent, it's a hard, um, truth, you know, to, to accept. Um, but the most important thing was for, for her, she immediately believed us and, Mm -hmm. you know, even me later, you know, of course, like after the fact and, um, it's just, a hard thing for, I think, any parent. And we have to learn even how, what the process should be for when a child discloses. It's one of the things that I talk about also and teach, um, because unfortunately, a lot of times uh, parents can re-traumatize the child unintentionally because of the way that they respond. Um, You know, it's really hard for a kid to come forward at whatever age. You know, for my sister, she was already in her early twenties when she came out, um, you know, about that. So I think all, you know, if, if your child is young or if your child is older, it's always going to be a really difficult thing, but, um, you know, she's, she's a resilient woman. And I think that, um, it's helped her. Like when I said, you know, I'm going to come out publicly about this. She was a hundred percent behind me, you know, whatever I felt was, going to help heal not just myself but others you know she's totally behind that because again she's a survivor as well yes and you are as well you know you are resilient and it's you were 17 you know you had completely pushed those memories to the side you know you blocked them and you, you spoke about your sister experience but let's go with you like you didn't speak up or like when she spoke up, you know, you, you waited, how, how long did you wait until you, you know, felt comfortable to speak about your experience with with your mom? Because at the end she supported you both, but 
it must have been a lot of time, like a lot of time of you to work and to to care of yourself, and just to be comfortable to mm-hmm. just voice it. Yeah. Well, I honestly did not have um, because. For my sister, unfortunately, it happened over a period of years. Mm-hmm. For me, it was only a few times. And, you know, I, I think for a long time, I didn't even believe that it had happened to me because I was like, it wasn't as bad. And so therefore, it, you know, maybe wasn't abuse. Like I didn't make that connection until I was a lot older. Um, because also um, at around probably a year later after I had found out about her, I ended up also being date raped. And that was something that was a very different experience, obviously, from what happened when I was younger, um, but was also the reason I never even reported that or, or, you know, even accepted that that's what it was until I was older, um, was just because that the way that I was raised was to believe that, you know, if you dress a certain way, if you, you know, go out with someone um, or drink or, you know, do drugs, like you're responsible, you put yourself in that position. And so when it happened to me, I felt like, you know, I, first of all, I had told my mom I was going to go see a friend, but I was actually going on a date because she, she didn't allow me to date. Mm -hmm. So I had to like sneak off and do that. So I thought this is the consequence that, you know, I get for, not, you know, for first of all, lying, breaking the rules, like wearing a short skirt. Maybe it was because I teased that person. Maybe it was because of something I said, like I kept blaming myself. Um, and then I was also fearful if I told her, you know, that I would get into so much trouble and she would blame me instead of, you know, like these were just ideas in my own head at the time. Not that I think in retrospect, she would have believed me and she would have supported me. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I was in my late twenties that I realized like that wasn't consensual. And I, you know, when I remember watching a movie that had a scene that was very similar to what had happened to me and I was pregnant at the time and I, I like, I started crying and I couldn't understand why it affected me so mm-hmm. bad. Um, but it, it, you know, I realized that that was a trigger from the experience that I had gone through, you know, um, I was about 18 at the time and, um, you, you know, something as simple as like teaching a child that consent can be withdrawn would help them to understand that it wasn't their fault and that they have rights and that they could have, you know, said no. Um, and having been able to report it, you know, hopefully that person, hasn't gone on to do that again, but you know, when you don't report it, you're also allowing someone to not become responsible. Right. So Mm -hmm. sometimes for us, it's like a really hard decision. I wish that I had known that I could have reported back then. So, you know, when I was, once I became an adult and I got older, it was like, okay, I, I realized that the things that happened to me were not right. And they were not my fault. And part of the work that I do now even is to help other survivors realize that they don't need to hold on to that shame and that guilt, because it's never your fault. As much as, you know, you may be psychologically manipulated by an abuser, that it was your fault or that you asked for it or that you enjoyed it. Like, you know, there's so many ways that someone can hold on to guilt. It's never your fault, you know? And so I think for, for my mom too, like she carried that for a really long time Mm -hmm. and and felt like if I say something, people are going to think it was somehow I brought it on to myself. And so she carried her, like she didn't disclose until she was like in her seventies. 
to anyone, you know, so she carried that for a really long time. And it was a very violent situation for her too. It was, you know, not something that, um, could be easily forgotten, you know? So just, yeah, I, I feel like being able to come out and talk about it, um, with her and, and for us to connect on that level for my sister to be, to be able to talk about it and openly now too, and to like, for everyone to have let go of the shame that didn't even belong to us in the first place, um, I think has been so liberating for everyone, you know, to, to know that it's okay to, to talk about this. It's like, you know, I, I equate it with someone saying, you know, if you were to get mugged, right. Mm -hmm. If you were, if you like got held up at gunpoint and like you gave up your purse and you got beat up anyway, and you know, you, like, would it make sense for you to not report it and to be afraid to tell someone, like, I think I brought it on to myself because I was wearing an expensive handbag. You know, like, would that, would somebody go like, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, like, of course it's, it's the same thing. And we hold on to the shame of like, somehow I brought it on to myself and it's, you know, people aren't going to believe me. It's my fault. You know, somebody's going to think I'm not as valuable or as worthy now. Like mm -hmm. we have all of these misconceptions that I think that's one of the other pieces of my work that I really enjoy helping women, you know, or survivors of any gender really to recognize that it's, it's definitely not ever your fault, no matter what you you were told to believe or what society makes you believe, um, it's absolutely never your fault, you know, and that's the bottom line, you know? So it's just, yeah, it feels good to know that, uh, I can talk about it comfortably now and encourage others to, you know, not necessarily talk about it, but to let go of that shame and to start to feel that liberation. Cause it's such a beautiful experience once you can. Yeah. So you, you know, we, we talked about the different, I think, learning experiences from abuse in your family. And now it's, I guess it's, so the third generation with your children, correct? And mm -hmm. how is that you learning and teaching your children about consent from a very young age? And can you share with us what are the the things that one needs to share to their children to have them known that their voice, whatever, you know, they say is, will be heard and that they have the right to be constant to like, they have constant, even from like, I guess from like, from their two, like there's questions that many listeners who are parents maybe thinking when is the correct age for me to talk about consent and having their voice be heard. Yeah. So you can teach consent as soon as a child is born, just in the way that you talk to them and tell them what, what it is that you're doing and the tone of your voice and the way that, you know, if, if you have the option and somebody wants to, you know, carry the baby and the baby's crying because they don't want to be with that person. And you still like, you know, sometimes you, you have to hand over the baby to somebody else. But let's say, you know, it's a situation where it's not absolutely necessary. Would you still let that person keep holding the baby? You know, like just little things like that. Mm -hmm. But typically, most parents will will start to think about it when the baby is, you know, starting to potty train, right? When they're getting older and they're starting to maybe use the bathroom or they're learning how to transition 
usually it's around that time that parents will start to think about it. What I always recommend is as soon as your child is pre-verbal or sorry, is verbal and they can start to speak, you can start to at least teach some language that helps them to uh, establish body safety and consent, you know, and learn, learn about boundaries. Um, But I would say start with teaching them about their private parts, what the correct anatomical names are. Don't give them nicknames. Don't like, you know, give them funny names. Um, Use the right words because that also helps them develop um, body positivity, which is really important as a part of body safety for kids to have a strong sense of um, feeling good about their body and, and, you know, not shame, feeling shame about certain parts of it. So start with those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, make sure that you're talking about secrets, make, make sure that you're explaining also to the people in your child's life that you're asking them not to keep, you know, like to teach your child about even like little good secrets or sometimes it's like, Oh, we're going to go get some ice cream. Like don't tell your parents because, you know, a grandparent, right. Might do something like that just because they want to spoil the child and, but that's setting up for potential um, grooming, right? Because predators will try to, you know, get on the good side of a child and like build trust and bring, you know, build a, a relationship with them in order to then abuse them. So we want to make sure we're teaching kids about secrets, um, that secrets are never okay, no matter what kind, right? But also talking to the adults in our child's life about the fact that we're doing abuse prevention education because especially for a child who can't really speak yet themselves, um, we want to be the ones that are like being vocal on their behalf and talking to those people. And then our children see how we are talking about it and modeling it. Um, So it gives them the ability, right, to hear the language that, that they can then start to use um, and if you've started preparing them early, then it becomes an easier process throughout their life. And what do you say to parents who were our survivors and are afraid to be triggered while educating their children? And it has to be like such a space where you have to be guiding them, correct? Like, what 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 do you say to them? Yeah, so... It's what one of the things again is like making sure that you have some kind of support system, and that that might yeah. be really hard for people who have never disclosed, right? Mm-hmm. So someone like my mom would not have known like how do I get a support system if I haven't told anybody about you know what happened to me. So um, sometimes it can be um, in an in anonymous ways. For example, uh, you know seeking out some kind of therapy where it's not necessarily connected to your family. You don't have to tell your family about it, right? Um, But having some way to take care of your mental health. So whether that is that, you know, you go to yoga or that you, you know, make the time for yourself where you're doing some kind of self-care because it will require your um, mental capacity and your emotional capacity to be there to, to, to support you through this process. So um, that can be also like, you know, doesn't have to be a therapist. You could go to, uh, you know, someone who teaches meditation and like work with them. Or if you can't, um, you don't have the resources to be able to go to see someone, you know, there's so many resources online that you can access to help you learn how to do grounding strategies like 
breathing techniques or mindfulness practices. Like there's so many ways that we can support our mental health through this um, if we start to to dig, right? So one of the things that has helped me, for example, that I teach, um, I don't teach it myself, but I'll guide my members, for example, for my membership. Um, they have access to resources. I uh, bring in bonus experts and things like that. So they'll they'll have links even to learn how to do something like EFT, right? The, the tapping modality that can also help you when you're feeling triggered. So finding different ways to manage your anxiety, finding different ways to manage um, the different states. Sometimes that has to do with um, learning more about conscious parenting and mm-hmm. ways that you can you know, deal with when your kids freak out and sometimes that might trigger you. Um, and then, you know, you're like, I there's too many things to, to manage. Like it just feels overwhelming. Um, so, you know, t- think about the fact that you can also take little steps. You don't have to do all of it at once. Um, I encourage people to, you know, go as, as, as slow as they need to, as long as they don't stop. Mm-hmm. just make sure you're doing something that you're talking about some aspect of, you know, abuse prevention with your family and your kids and your community. Um, every little bit makes a difference as long as you keep going, you know? So my, what I always encourage people is, you know, find a support system. If you don't have a support system, find ways that you can manage your emotional states and regulate, you know, learn, like there's so many resources available. You can listen to a podcast even, you know, and learn about, um, how to do that. But ultimately the, the message is really don't stop, find ways to support yourself and then make sure you keep doing something to empower your kids. And to continue this education about content with children, you know, before COVID, we, children were in spaces where they could also be easily victims of abuse, you know, teachers, uh, coaches, in everything, but also it was much easier for teachers, doctors, coaches to find to discover that they were victims of abuse. And now that with our with the with the pandemic, children are in spaces that abuse is happening. And you, I, you recently shared. Let me pull it up. An article that it was about rain that in all their like years of being, you know, open. Yeah. The cases were being called from children, minor children, like minors. And how has, I, I mean, I, I guess, yes, victims have escalated throughout these past months. And my question is, how can children, I guess, parents who find themselves in trapped, I guess, because we are inside our homes, try to help our children and vocalize that abuse, even when we're inside and one thinks one is safe because we have to be inside and the abuse is coming from inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the statistic was um, for RAIN, which is the Rape and Incest uh, National Network, they are the sort of clearinghouse for reports, right? So people will call, um, it's, a, it's a national hotline, and 
um, they will connect someone to a local resource to find support and, and, uh, and safety, right? Um, so they've been operating for 25 years and they have never in their entire history have had so many calls from minors. So uh, the, the, the number is that 50, more than 50% of the calls that were coming in were reports um, for or by minors. And so that's a dramatic increase um, because, like you said, kids don't have those reporting eyes, those, you know, people who are mandated to report some suspicion or something that they've seen. Um, they don't have access to those people anymore. And unfortunately, like you said, kids are trapped at home with abusers. And a lot of times people think that that's just parents, but it could be um, another family member that lives at home, including a sibling, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, or it could be, so, you know, if someone's coming to the home to take care of the child because they don't, you know, they can't go to school, mm-hmm. they, that's their childcare now. Um, so what I recommend is that families develop safety networks. So essentially what that is, is um, that the family looks at five, four to five people in their uh, circle, you know, their inner circle, and invite them to be a safe person for the child. And the reason why is because sometimes if a child is being abused, they may, you know, they may have... Um, they may um, not realize that they have other people that they could get help from. Like maybe the abuser told the child, like, if you tell your parents, you know, I'm going to hurt them or some, you know, or they're, you know, whatever threat that they come up with. Right. But if the child has other people in their uh, circle that they know that they can reach out to, they may consider doing that because they're like, well, I was told not to tell my parents, but maybe this other person can help me find a solution, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they can help me figure out what to do um, because ultimately they want to make the situation stop. But if, you know, they feel like their parents would be so upset if they found out or, you know, they don't want to tell them because of what the abuser said, they may never ask for help. And this mm-hmm. could escalate and get worse, right? And be on an ongoing situation. Um, so if a, if a child has a safety network and other people that they know how to contact them, that they know that person's going to believe them, that they know that they are safe people um, who can help them, then th- they have a much higher chance of getting that help. So I always encourage people, if you know that your niece or nephew doesn't have a safety network, you know, talk to that, talk to your, you know, sibling and offer yourself as a safe person and then set up that safety network. Um, if you are the parent, set up the safety network for your child and look for, you know, those people and get your child involved. So, um, for example, I have a free um, guide that shows you step-by-step how to create a safety network that is going to be effective. And that is a real lifeline for kids nowadays. Um, it's also important just to let kids know what other access, you know, they have. So even putting the number on your fridge for... Um, you know, something like RAIN or other organizations that are local, um, you know, just to be safe, just to make sure that they know how, you know, how to contact. Because, you know, who knows what situations you may find yourself in. You may be hospitalized and having to have, you know, your child taken care of by people um, who are in your inner circle, but they're still, you know, not you, right? And if you're 
thinking like, I want to make sure that my child is safe. Well, get, you know, be prepared and set up those safeties. Um, and so the safety network is one of the biggest tools that could really help kids while they're in quarantine. So that's one of the things that I've been really trying to get parents to focus on doing during this time. And, you know, we're still in quarantine and with children, there's this topic of both schools open to go for, back to school these learning pods that you've, you know, talk about on Instagram, let's go deeper on that. You know, it's also like for our listeners who may not have children and not, are not aware, but like learning parts are like, I, I guess like each parent um, volunteers where I'll have all like the five children here and I'll teach them this day and then you can teach them the next day. And that, and that's having that risk of it's not you who is, mm-hmm taking care of your child, you know this person, but you really don't know that person and your household. And, you know, what are the steps to, again, talking with your child about, it it comes to mind, you know, no one can kiss you on the lips, you know, even if you don't feel comfortable of hugging someone or like giving them a kiss on the cheek, because that's very much of how one does in Latino households. Mm-hmm. And I guess with quarantine, it, it has stopped now, but a little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, but what are the steps to speak with your child if you decide to have them in these learning pods? And what are also the conversations that you have to have with the other parents and make them aware that your child is not afraid to vocalize and that they know about content and that they will come to them if anything happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, learning pods are something that I think are going to become very popular. Um, they are already, I think quite popular, but I think once parents realize like we're back in September and (laughs) I need to figure out what to do, um, these are going to really become popular. And the, the, the risk factor is that if you don't know how to make sure that the spaces that your child is going into are safe and you're just hoping or you're like, you know, I think I know them. They seem like a safe family. You know, it should be a fine. Um, you're really putting your kids at, at a higher risk, right? So um, it's really important for parents to know, uh, first of all, go to the homes of the different parents, right? Don't just like assume that, everything's going to be fine. Like, so make sure that you know who is living in the home, um, what those, you know, like who's going to be in the home during the time that your child will be there. Um, If there are older siblings, what is the regulation with that? Like, what's the ratio going to be between adults and kids and, you know, between the different ages, right? So that, that may be another situation where you may have you know, a young child and an older sibling that are, you know, in the same group just because that's easier. You know, there's going to be so many differenti- differentiating um, factors. So it's just important to know, like, who will be in that home um, if they are older teens or, you know, um, what's the ratio between adults and children, right? Like, are you putting your teenager as a supervisor, you know, while you have to go do something or like, what's the protocol if something happens and, you know, my child 
needs to get out of that situation? Like, you know, what access are they going to have to communication with me? Um, you know, there's so many little factors like that, that really have to be thought out and communicated. Like, so I encourage parents to get together and have an open conversation about safety and just say, you know, this is not to point fingers at anybody at all. We just want to make sure that everybody's home is going to be a safe space for everybody's kids. And so, you know, what, what are those, um, you know, different scenarios going to look like? What is okay with you? What's not? And then vocalize, like, we are teaching abuse prevention education. Um, these are the things that we expect in terms of physical exchanges or interactions, right? So as an example, um, just the fact that you're even bringing that up is going to make all of those parents aware that maybe they should be doing that too, right? And like, maybe that's a strategic conversation that everybody needs to have with their kids beforehand. And like, so everybody's on the same page. Um, so there's a lot of like little pieces like that um, without getting into the nitty gritty, but like we can't just rush into these situations and just be like, oh, I'll drop my kid off. You know, it's, I've, I've known those parents for a while, or maybe they have an older, uh, you know, like your oldest child, you know, is, who, you know, you're going to be dropping them off at. And so it's with your younger child, you're like, oh, I've known them for a while, but do you really know, you know, everybody who's there? Like maybe there's a relative who's living there right now, or, um, you know, like I said, an, a teenager. So those are the kinds of situations that we want to make sure that we're looking at and mm -hmm. being really open and transparent with all the people involved um, so that, you know, it's as safe as possible of a situation. And now with your children, you know, and you helping parents and to educate their children about consent, what have been those moments where you feel like not, I am doing, you know, the work that is necessary with your own children? Like, have they, have you noticed, a, I guess, a change? You've been educating them since they were young, but have you noticed them? something that you're proud of, like, oh, okay, it's, I'm so happy, you know, I, I <laughs> yeah. talked to them about this. Like, are, can you share with us, with us those experiences? Yeah. That's the most exciting thing when you realize like, oh, they've, be, they've been paying attention. <laughs> um, and you realize that, yeah, they understand it. And I know if somebody tried something that they would know what to do and that they would be able to speak up, you know, and it's, ongoing process, right? Like even for my oldest child, who's been learning about this the longest and really gets it, I'm still always practicing, like making sure that they feel comfortable vocalizing that in all kinds of situations, right? So um, one example that I can give you is there was a scene in um, the Harry Potter movie. I can't remember what the exact scene was, but I do remember um, my child saying like, that wasn't consent, right, mom? You know, and it was just like a scene where I think like the, the teacher had grabbed Harry Potter and just like moved him into his seat or something, you know, and like without asking, you know, like my kids are so um, attuned to the fact that you, nobody can just grab you and push, put you mm -hmm. in a seat. Like even if it's a teacher, that's not okay. Um, so they are picking it up even when they're watching media and they understand that when they see another character whose consent is being, you know, violated, that they're pointing it out instead of me saying it, right? So they've already like got it. And that is one of the most like amazing feelings is when you realize your kids are using consent language, they are 
their fully understanding of what's okay and not okay so that there's never a doubt and that they are confident in the fact that they know their rights. That is like the best feeling in the world. Um, and that's my goal, you know, for all parents. I, I always say to my members, like when you start to see that, you know, you'll realize that all this hard work of pushing through those triggers of, um, you know, doing the work to take care of yourself and your healing, cause it is work, you know, but when you do all of that, um, and then you start to see the results, it's like so worth it. And it makes you want to keep going, you know, it makes you realize like, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep doing this. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Seriously, this is like the necessary foundation when child children need to have, like you said, to be confident, to know consent, to know that, you know, they have the right over their body and what is correct and what is not, even from, you know, having being that consent being crossed with a with the teacher. Mm-hmm. Just having that foundation and them being confident really can build it to the person that they're meant to be, to choose a path that they, you know, life is calling them. Like it's all that necessary roots that one mm-hmm. needs to have. And you are doing such amazing work. Seriously, this is work that is always necessary. And, you know, from our current reality has shifted but the education, the talk, the work that is needed to be put into these children is even more important than ever. You know, what can you say to parents who, to our listeners, Latinas, who they might be, you know, victims and they're survivors and they're just currently in this state where, you know, they feel they can't get out, but, and they, they have children, what words of, advice, encouragement, and, and your know, actions do you, can you share with us to them? Yeah. So this is right now, one of the most critical times for survivors to really do self-care. And I know that, you know, you see that all over Instagram, do self-care, mm-hmm. you know, like don't feel guilty about it. And it's hard even for survivors. Like we just, mm-hmm. we may not feel we're worthy of self-care. Um, we may feel like, you know, um, what society tells us about it, you know, what we're worthy of, right. And we, um, may be brainwashed about it, you know, to be quite honest, I think that it takes a lot of courage to start to love yourself when you've come from a place of not loving yourself for so long. Um, so I think that what we can be doing right now actively is, um, is taking care of our mental wellness because we have to, to, to develop resiliency in order to even step into a healing journey. Maybe right now is not the moment for you to step into that healing journey. Maybe right now it's the moment to build your resiliency. And the way that you can do that is by doing that really intentional and intensive work of self-care and self-love. Yes. Um, because until we get to that place, we won't believe that we're worthy of the healing. So we have to start with that place. And I think that opens the door to realizing that we're worthy, um, and that our children are worthy, right? If, Mm -hmm. if we, um, are like, we are modeling that for them as well, you know? And I think that that is a really important piece, um, for body safety, even like to show that to your kids that, 
you know, they come first, just like you come first, right? So you're teaching through example. Um, so if you, if you can start modeling that and um, come from a place of self-compassion, I think that goes a long way um, to helping you manage those triggers and helping you manage those things because you will have to do this. You will have to have these conversations now. It, there is no... Um, Oh, you know, like a lot of parents are like, I'll just keep my kids home. I'm not going to let, you know, do, they do all the things that my mom did and they're not paying attention to all the things, but also it's not giving them skills, right? You're depriving mm-hmm. your children of the skills because you can't teach it to them. And so you have to start by building that resiliency so that you can support yourself mental, mentally, you know, that mental, emotional wellness piece. Um, so that you can teach this really critically important life-saving information um, that you have to do right now. Like there's just no going around it. You have to, um, because you, you know, your biggest job is to protect your children, their health and their safety is your biggest priority, right? So if that's, if you know that that's true, then you know that you have to teach your kids about abuse prevention. And so in order to do that, you have to prioritize your mental, emotional, and physical wellness. So my biggest, you know, uh, recommendation is for everyone to, you know, start like dosing out some big amounts of self-compassion, self-love, and uh, and self-care right now. Mm, it hit me right in my heart. Yes. And <laughs> like you said, this is, we're living in a time that is, it's, it's in our it's in our house, in our households. And I truly believe, like you say constantly, this generation is the generation that we're going to dismantle this and, you know, make movement towards eradicating abuse. Mm-hmm. And the work that you're doing is so necessary and it's helping to dismantle that. And now that I've, we've had so many, you know, this conversation was, it, it touched my soul. It, it really, I, I truly believe my listeners are even more inspired and empowered to be vocalizing this and to be teaching their children, their nephews, their nieces, their cousins, that mm-hmm. their consent is important and, and talk about abuse and just push those stigmas aside and I want to close now with asking you, knowing what you know now, experiencing what you experienced, that process, that education, and if you had the opportunity to go back in time, or whatever age, you know, what would you say to your younger younger self? Mm. Ooh. <laughs> um, I would probably... Uh, tell myself that I can handle whatever comes my way as long as I, um, as long as I take care of me and, mm-hmm. you know, prioritize um, my well-being so that I can help others. Because if you keep burning out, you can't help anyone else. So be kind to yourself is probably what I would tell my younger self because I've been pretty hard on myself most Mm -hmm. of my life, you know, always wanting to like overachieve. And I think that's part of 
a survivor mechanism too of like wanting to show up and, and have people see your value, mm-hmm. but to, um, to remind me, my inner younger child that, uh, I already am valuable and mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that can't ever be taken away. That's so beautiful. Thank you. And, you know, share, can you share with our listeners, where can they find you? I know you do Facebook lives, you do Instagram lives, you are constantly educating, you know, and it, it's so important. So can you share with us where can our listeners find you? And sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I love showing up live because um, I can engage with people. So if you're interested in, you know, connecting with me, that's one of the best ways is to show up on one of my lives. Um, but you can find me on consentparenting.com uh, is where all of my, uh, you know, consent education, abuse prevention education information is at. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, um, also consent parenting for those handles. Um, and then you can also listen to my podcast, which is about consent.com, um, or on Instagram about consent podcast. I'm not on there as often. Um, but I do, you know, I am, I am definitely showing up there at least in my stories. So yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's, uh, that's how everyone can connect. Thank you so much for this conversation. I truly thank you for what you do. Thank you for giving us your time and, and really helping children because, what we're doing today will provide that empowerment to the next generation to be better, to, to be more confident in themselves and to know their worth and that no one needs to cross that barrier of making them feel uncomfortable and, and, and make them victims of it. So thank you for all the work that you do. And I, once this can be done and we can travel, I would love to do like an in-person conversation and to just give provide us an, with an update because I would love that <laughs> well thank you for having me I appreciate uh you wanting to amplify this information because it's so important now more than ever so no. thank you so much yes and thank you for listening and watching I hope this conversation empowered you to really reach into your voice and discover that you are worthy and if you are a victim to have that power to come out and, you know, ask for help. And if you know a victim to help them out and to really be communicative about that. And I hope Rosalia and myself in our conversation really gave you those tools today. And you can follow us on Instagram on that is a yes, the podcast at a double L a S the podcast and you can email me if you would like to be a guest here at aspodcast at gmail.com. That is E-L-L-A-S-thepodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like, follow me at Instagram. That is Brent underscore hi, B-R-E-N underscore J-A-I. Thank you once again, Rosalia. This was simply a wonderful conversation and I'm so happy and just truly this, this, this information, everything is the necessary foundation for one to be empowered and to create an impact. So thank you for amplifying what you do and thank you for doing the work and I'll see you in two weeks. Adios. If you've been listening to AS for a while, 
You know that I'm a big supporter of providing a platform for Latinas to share their stories and inspire current and future generations of women. With that said, I'm looking to get this podcast into the lives of more amazing Latinas just like you. You can help by going to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Tell me what you think and leave any number of stars. It would mean the world to me. Thank you in advance. Ellas is produced, hosted, and audio edited by me, Brenda Hernandez Jaimez. Our video conversations are edited by Javier Ortiz Ruiz. Our logo and podcast cover art was designed by Jennifer Cepeda. And thank you to Shro, who created the podcast theme song, Sunken Streets. You can download this track on freemusicarchive.org or listen to him on Spotify, YouTube, and follow him on Instagram. This is Ellas.